Well, welcome to Antioch. We're in a series called The Transforming Word of God. Grab your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn with me to the book of John, chapter one. John, chapter one. And I'm not gonna go in and try to explain all the many lessons that we've already done the past six weeks, but you can go to our website on antioch.is and get caught up if some of the things are resonating with you this morning. John, chapter one, verse one, the scripture says, in the beginning was the word. Everybody say the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He, meaning the word, which is Jesus. So just to be very clear here in John chapter one, one of the titles that Jesus has, Jesus, the son of God, one of his titles is the word of God. Jesus, the word was in the beginning with God. Now in the beginning references the beginning of eternity. And what that means, because our little tiny finite minds cannot comprehend eternity, we have to create some sort of brackets. So is there really a beginning to eternity? No. Is there an end to eternity? No. Can you figure that out? No, and neither can I. But to give us some kind of idea of some of, of the concept that Jesus was always with the Father, Jesus, the uncreated son of God, the second member of the Trinity was always with God. And that's the concept there when he says he was with God in the beginning. It means he has always existed. He is uncreated. He is eternal, just like God the Father is. Verse three, all things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, through Christ Jesus all of creation has happened because he was the executional agent of creation in the Godhead of the Trinity. Verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. I believe it was the third message in our series. We are talking about the fact that we come to the word to experience the life of God. Not just rules, not just religions, not just traditions, not just ideas, but we come to the word so that we can partake and participate in the life of God, the Zoe life of God. Zoe means the spiritual or God quality life. And this is what he's talking about here. And in fact, uh, the word life there is Zoe. In him was Zoe, God quality, spiritual, eternal life. And that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. We're gonna continue our series today. We're in chapter two of the book, Life with God. And I wanna also go to another passage of scripture found in the book of Revelation. So turn with me to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And we're gonna look at Revelation 19. And if any of you feel like you're not tracking with what's going on thus far. Don't worry, we're gonna connect all these dots here in a minute. Revelation 19, we're gonna look at verse 13. And then it says, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. This is Jesus. He's got a lot of titles. And in righteousness, he judges and he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Verse 13, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. 
His name is called the Word of God. Now today, I've got one objective among many, and one of the objectives that I have, it's one of my side objectives, is that if if there were anything operating in any of us that would seek to elevate a sense of spirituality, worship, prayers, forms of spiritual mysticism above the word of God, one of my aims, one of my hopes today is that we would understand that God elevates his word so much so that he actually names his son the word of God. That's a big deal. So when we, when we gather and, and we want to in some ways substitute other things that feel a little better or may seem a little more spiritual, we want to substitute those things uh, and remove the word of God. Listen, there's nothing more spiritual than you, that you can do than to come to God through the word of God, who is Jesus. There's a reason why God named his son the word of God. He's elevating the fact that through God's words, we come to know who he is. And the word of God is designed to bring us into the heart and the character and the nature and the life of God. That's what this series is all about. So let's, let's start moving today. Number one, if you're taking notes, one of the points that we want to make is that there is a distinction between the written word and the living word. The written word and the living word. There's a distinction between these two things, and there's a reason why I want to make this known today. What you have in your hands, the scriptures, and scripture says that many, many people contributed to this Bible. Many people that were moved by the Spirit of God, 1 Peter 2 speaks of that, 2 Timothy 3.16 speaks of that. There were many people that were involved in the engineering of what we call the Word of God. And I'm going to use some very specific words. I'm going to distinguish this as the written Word of God. In Greek, this is called graphe, graphe where we get the word graph or graph paper or graphic. Okay, so the written Word of God is something that was compiled by many people over many, many years moved on by the Spirit of God, and they captured the heart, and they captured the thoughts, the intellect of God's heart and God's mind, and they put it in words. And that's what we call the written Word of God. Now, the written Word of God leads us to what I'm calling the living Word of God. And there is a distinction. Jesus is the living Word. Word of God. As we saw right there in Revelation 19, verse 13, his name shall be called the Word of God. He is the living Word of God. And here's why I make this distinction, because if we're not careful, many people, what they'll do is they'll treat the Bible as an end to itself. They'll treat the graphe, they'll treat the written Word, and they'll substitute the written Word for the living Word. Are you understanding what I'm saying here today? They will elevate the written word over encountering the living word. Now, let's just continue to walk. If we come to the Bible, the written word, without acknowledging Jesus, the living word, we are in danger of treating the Bible as an end to itself. And you see this in a lot of fundamental uh, components of Christianity. What does this mean? What is the danger of this? How do we do this and what does this look like? Here's just a couple of examples among many. When we come to the written word simply to get our answers met or our needs met, we talked about this in the beginning, we are making the Bible an end to itself. When we make reading the Bible alone the goal, 
When we make the quiet time and making sure I read my chapter, my five chapters, my 10 chapters, when we make reading the Bible plan, the one-year Bible plan, when we make that the goal, then we are treating the Bible as an end to itself. And we're, we're creating an agenda with the written word instead of allowing the written word to be a bridge that connects us to the living word. Finding the life of God in the word of God. When we simply put exhortations together, I don't know how many of you guys have had opportunity to lead Bible studies or preach or give exhortations for offering or preach on the mission field or whatever it may be. But when, when you go to the word only to find something to say to somebody else, you're treating the Bible as an end to itself. You're not going to the written word so that you can find the living word. When we read the Bible to validate our self-righteousness, anybody ever done that before? Anybody ever, how many, let me just ask you this. You don't have to raise your hands here. I know the truth, all right? So when you, when you start a day off and at some point in that day, when you go to the word, regardless of whether or not you encounter Jesus, regardless of whether or not you bore your heart before him, regardless of whether or not you heard his voice, regardless of whether or not you felt like you grew in love or understood his heart, but man, you, you read that verse, you read that chapter. How many of you just feel a little better about yourself and a little better about your Christianity and a little better about your righteousness and your faith than those days when you don't? I'm probably talking to the podcast community because I know that nobody in here has a day where you don't go to the word. So you're like, I don't know what, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have days where I don't go to the word. Well, I do. I have those days. And listen, listen, you know when you're, you know when you're treating the Bible as an end to itself, when you feel a little better about yourself on the days when you read the word than on the days when you don't. Listen, on the days when you don't go to the word, now I'm not advocating not reading your Bible. You guys have to hear the spirit of what I'm talking about here today. We're gonna to talk about the spirit of the law today. On the days when you don't, you are still a son. You are still a daughter. You are still deeply loved. You still have a relationship with God. Do I believe that this is extremely valuable, extremely viable? Do I believe that this is extremely profitable? Yes, of course I do. But in the days when you do not, and those days will come, do not let condemnation come in. And if it does, that is an indicator that maybe you're going to the word as an end and not the means to connect with the heart of God. Let's keep going here. When we treat the Bible as an end to itself, we misinterpret the life of God in his words. We misinterpret the life of God. This is where we get into some legalistic, letter of the law, religious doctrinal things that are designed to control and condemn. That's what happens when we treat the Bible as an end in and of itself. We fail to receive and be transformed by the life of God. Number three, we miss his heart. We miss his heart. When, when, you, when you simply go to the scriptures just to say that you read the scriptures, you will miss his heart. It reminds me of times when Christy will send me a text and she'll say something very important in that text and it'll come up later on in a conversation and she'll, go, she'll say, oh, do you remember that text I sent you? And I'll be like, oh yeah, I saw it. Like seeing the text and reading what she is saying in the text 
and connecting to the story behind the text are two completely different things. Just glancing at the text to say that I saw the text so that I don't get in trouble for not looking at the text is not really reading the text. Any other husbands in the house? Thank you. Thank you. Very good. We, fa- we miss his heart. Okay, so no text message glances at the word. We miss his heart. Number four, we fail to enter into deeper relationship with him when we treat the word as an end to itself. Number five, we elevate ourselves and our own righteousness. But here's probably the most important thing. We set the Bible up as a tool to control. When we treat the Bible as an end to itself, not as a means to engage the heart of God, we will inevitably use the word as a tool to control. And I think that's what in our history and throughout different facets and denominations of Christianity, people have experienced this and they don't like it because it doesn't feel good. Nobody likes to feel controlled. Nobody likes to feel controlled in the name of religion. Here are some examples in the scriptures of how we misappropriate things and we use the Bible as an end. Let's go to Luke chapter 11. Jesus dealt with a specific group of people. In fact, he dealt with a number of groups of people that liked to use the word as a means to an end or as as an end of itself. And they liked to use the scriptures as a tool to control and condemn. Those people were called the Pharisees. They were also called the scribes. And you'll also see a group of people that we're gonna look at specifically called the teachers of the law. They're also known as lawyers. And their function and their job was in every situation, whether it be civil or religious, their job was to make sure that what people were doing was lining up exactly to the standard of the law. That was their function in society. None of you guys have that function anymore, all right? You don't have to roll around and make sure that everybody's living up to the standard of the law. And nobody should be doing that to you, not in this house. All right, Luke chapter 11. You guys can give me a courtesy giggle right there. Thank you. Just release some of the pressure valve. Luke chapter 11, we're gonna look at verse 45. And just to give you a little bit of the context here, Jesus is speaking to a group of guys known as the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of the day. They were like the prophets, they were the pastors and the priests of the day. And Jesus was, he was addressing some, some discrepancies. He was addressing some things in their leadership and in their lives that weren't lining up. They weren't producing life. So look at verse 45. And one of the lawyers, or the teachers of the law, said to him in reply, teacher, when you say these things, well, you're kind of insulting us too. Well, first of all, he's incriminating himself. And second of all, the lesson here is, when Jesus is on a roll, don't interrupt him, because he'll turn and he'll get on you too. Because look at Jesus' reply, verse 46. Well, he said, well, woe to you as well. This is so funny. I wish I could have been there, man. For you weigh men down with burdens that are hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burden with one of your fingers. Okay, we're going to push pause. Now let's jump, because he addresses a number of different things, but let's jump to verse 52. Then he says, Woe to you, lawyers, teachers of the law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, who had a desire to enter in to life, who had a desire to enter into freedom, who have a desire to engage in an honest, authentic relationship with God, you have hindered them. 
because of your religious rules, because of your attempt to control and to condemn, you have made it difficult for them to come to me. You have become a stumbling block for honest seekers to come and encounter me because of your rules of religion. What does that look like? It looks like saying that unless you read five chapters of the Bible a day, you are not a good Christian. Unless you pray an hour a day, unless you participate in a certain way in worship, unless you, there's a whole list of things that we can lay out. And when we, when we leverage those things to say whether or not people are measuring up to God or not, we are participating in the very thing that Jesus rebuked in these teachers of the law. Are you guys with me this morning? Let's look again very quickly at who the lawyers were. A person who is learned in the law or legal practice, they appear often in the scriptures together with the Pharisees and the scribes, and in all places where the word is employed, and all places where legal questions come into consideration, the scribes appear as authorities in questioning concerning prophecy, and also the teachers of the law are another name that's used for lawyers there. Let's just break this down. Let's explain this. There's a phrase that Richard Foster uses in the book that I thought was very, very profound. He says, the legalism of the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law is an expression of bibliolatry. Never heard that word before. Bibliolatry. What's bibliolatry? Again, bibliolatry is when we exalt God's written word over God's living word, Jesus. Bibliolatry is when we use the word as a means to control and condemn. Bibliolatry is when we put more focus on an intellectual, um, didactive, mental approach to God's word and we completely rule out the relational exchange of life and love that are found in God's word. A couple of thoughts here. This is when we know that we're operating in what we call bibliolatry. It is a rigid adherence to the letter of the scriptures, which is devoid of the presence of the spirit, and it makes an idol of the scriptures. How many guys are, how many guys are just relating to this or this resonates with you in any way? Maybe something that somebody else has done, not you guys, right? Awesome. Um, God is not the Bible. He is the author of the Bible. He is the author of the Bible. He is not the Bible, he's the author of it. And the Bible reveals his heart, and so that's what we engage the word for, to find his heart, to find his life, to understand who he is, and to enjoy the relationship that he has made possible for us. Obedience to the words of God are not simple moral conformity. Now, guys, I'm just gonna be honest with you. This this right here will change your parenting, if you can really get into the heart, and God, God is doing a jackhammer thing in me even as we speak, and it's really, really, it's, it's messing with me in a really good way. The point of my parenting is not so that my kids will just do what I tell them to do. The point of instruction is so that they get into the understanding of the heart and the motive and the, and the purpose behind why it is that you're sharing what you're sharing with your sons and your daughters. I'm telling you, it will transform the way that you parent. God is not looking for all of us to blindly obey him. 
How many of you guys have ever had that feeling? Maybe not even that thought consciously, but you had that feeling that if I just, you know, I cross my T's, I dot my I's, I do everything that he says, then everything's right, and that's really all that he wants from me, and I'm gonna make my way into heaven. Anybody ever felt that way before? Again, maybe not consciously thought it, but maybe you felt it. I wanna just address this. God is not into blind moral conformity. He's into, he's into exchange of hearts. He's into relationship. He's into, now relationship is not an excuse for disobedience. In fact, Jesus addresses this very clearly in John 14, 21, John 14, 23. If you love me, then you'll obey. The purpose and the motivation will be love. But he says, listen, if you really say that you love me, if we're enjoying a relationship of love, then the fruit of that in some way should be that you have wrestled through these things. You're owning these things. You're getting into the spirit of understanding these things. And the fruit of it will be obedience, but not just blind, legalistic, moral, mindless, robotic obedience. That is not what God is after with you or with me or with the church at large. You know whether you're responding relationally and you know whether or not you're responding by love by the way that you feel about yourselves when you obey. How many guys, just raise your hand if that's fuzzy. By the way you feel about yourself when you obey. Give me, give, let me give you an example. Do you feel inflated when you obey? Do you feel justified? Do you feel righteous? Do you feel good about yourself? Do you feel superior? Do you feel better than others? I, I, read my bio, I read 10 chapters today and you read only one. I feel awesome and you should feel horrible. That, listen, that's, hey, this is, on, this, is real, this is real time. Is this real time? This is real time stuff, okay? You are not engaging the life of God. You are not engaging the love of God when you use the scriptures to compare yourself one with another. It's not the purpose. They concealed, going back to the teachers of the law, the teachers of the law concealed from the people the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law. Now let's talk here for a few minutes as we close out and let's talk about the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The letter of the law and the spirit of the law. As you read through the New Testament, you're gonna find Paul addresses this all the time. He talks about how the letter kills and the spirit gives life. So what do we mean when we talk about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law? Let's give a couple examples here right now. Number one, the letter of the law is when we give attention solely to the command, when we give attention solely to the consequence. So all that matters is what you said and the consequence if I disobey. That's all I'm worried about. People who engage in the letter of the law often get very, very black and white. They get very, very meticulous. This is when you read certain things in the scriptures and if you take them out of context, if you read them without an understanding of proper hermeneutics, then you'll get crazy churches that don't let women wear makeup. Or you gotta wear your head in a bun, hair in a bun. Or you can't have musical instruments. That's craziness, that's crazy talk. It just is. Now, what that is, is that's, that's reading word for word, letter for letter. Now, if you want to do that, then guys, you need to grow out your sideburns and you, you need to, yeah, look, I see a guy over here. He's like, yeah, dude, check me out. All right. And, and, and don't, don't be eating no shrimp anymore. 
Okay, and on on it goes. Now, obviously, there's a lot of now. How do we how do we get into this? And what is what is for now? And what was just then? We got to get into all that. We're going to get into all that because we, it's not about selective. Oh, I like this and I don't like that. That's not what we are advocating here. But what we are advocating is is when we take simply an instructive approach. This is what God's word says, and I'm not really I'm not really into why He said that. And I'm not really into what was going on when he addressed that. And I'm not really into the wisdom behind that. It's just do this, don't do this. If you do this, you're gonna get blessed. If you don't do this, you're gonna get bad things are gonna happen. The letter of the law is when we give attention to his heart. Now, we're gonna see this later on in the book and it's marvelous the way that he maps this out. But listen, every specific genre of the written word of God has parts of God's heart that can be revealed. There's parts of his heart and his character and his nature that are revealed in the law. There's parts of his heart, his character and his nature that are revealed in the wisdom books. There's parts of his heart and his character and nature revealed in the prophets. Part of his heart and his character and nature revealed in the narrative books, in the gospels, in the epistles, which are the letter to the churches. In the revelatory books like Revelation, every single component, every genre of the writings of Scripture reveal a part of God's heart. That's very important for us to understand. Attention is given to the heart, the character, and the purpose. Now, this is important. Every rule has a context. Now, let's just kind of flip over here. Let's go natural. Every rule has a purpose. In fact, I was with Renee a couple days ago, right before she went into surgery. And uh, for those of you guys who don't know, Renee broke her thumb a couple weeks ago and had to go in and get a little surgical procedure done to it. Praise God, she's doing well. Sausage fingers are swelling down, coming down, and everything's doing great. Yeah, but we were sitting there in the room and we looked down on her hand and on one arm was written yes, and on the other arm was written no. And so we engaged in dialogue with one of the nurses and she said, well, you'd be amazed at how, you know, and I said, listen, I I get it. That was probably that you guys do that because at some point somebody didn't and it was a big, (laughs) somebody woke up and uh, they had two hurting thumbs instead of just one, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Okay. Every rule has a purpose. It has a reason. It has a wisdom point. It has a context. It has a story. So when we get into the quote unquote rules of God, when we get into the law of God, when we get into the wisdom of his instruction, there is a wisdom point in that. There is an understanding. There is, there is God, there is an understanding that God has to these things that if we just take it for face value and go, well, I don't like that or I don't agree with that or that doesn't line up with my cultural understanding or what about these people or if it offends your heart, what we have to do is we have to wrestle our way into his heart and say, I want to understand why it is that you're saying this. I don't wanna just chafe because you say no. I want to get myself into the spirit of understanding and find out why it is that you're saying what you're saying. That is true obedience. That is true sonship. In fact, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I was driving along the road one day after we had talked about the issue in the garden You guys remember that message, the issue in the garden, Genesis chapter three, and we talked about how Eve missed the heart of what God was doing and saying there in the garden. The enemy came and he says, well, what's going on right here? Can you touch these trees? And she was like, man, we can't eat of the fruit of this tree. And if we we even touch it, we'll die. And he says, you're not gonna die. We talked about that dying. Remember that message? 
couple days later, the Lord just kind of dropped this into my mind. It was there in the garden at that very moment, that very moment where the letter of the law was introduced. That is where the letter of the law was introduced. That is where she missed the heart and the purpose behind why God was saying what he was saying. At any given moment, now listen, Adam and Eve are walking with, walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day, every day. At any given moment, Eve could have just pushed pause and she could have went to the father and said, Father, if I touch this, am I going to die? Like, am I going to die, like fall down dead right now? At any given moment, she could have come and said, now, can you help me understand why it is that I can't eat this? And you know what? The father may have said, you know what, sweetie? You cannot understand right now, but I will. And if you trust me, and if you walk with me on this, there will come a time where you grow to a point of maturity where I can explain to you why, but right now you're not that place. So now what I want is you to trust my heart and you to trust my relationship. And we're gonna walk together and grow together to a place where you will be able to understand God would have did that, I promise you. I'm sure of it because he does it with us. But the letter of the law was introduced right there in the moment of that garden in Genesis chapter three. Number two, the letter of the law can be and most often is motivated by fear. When you find yourself doing things or not doing things out of fear, you're probably participating with the letter of the law. If I don't tithe, I'm afraid I will get cursed. That is called the letter of the law. Anybody ever had that thought? Anybody ever had the thought that if I would have prayed more, then this tragedy would not have happened? Anybody ever had that thought? Anybody ever had the thought that if I were good or if I were better, if I had read more of my Bible, then these things would not have happened? Have you had that thought? That is called the letter of the law. It is fear-based. It is fear-motivated. Everything is used to say, in order for you to experience goodness and not to experience bad things, you have to follow this to a T. That's called the letter of the law. It's motivated by fear, duty, discipline obligation. The spirit of the law is motivated by love. It's motivated by love. Now, do I believe that if I give that there is blessings? Absolutely. I do believe that 1000%, but I'm motivated out of love, like what David was talking about this morning. That is motivated by sonship. It's not motivated by fear. How did we give altar calls years ago? Anybody remember? How we give altar calls? We gave altar calls that said, you're gonna die and you're gonna rot in hell. And if you don't raise your hand and run down and pray this magical prayer with me, you know what that is? That's called letter of the law. That's called fear-based motivation. That's what that is. And we've taken that same fear-based letter of the law motivation and we've brought it into all of the way that we relate to God and life and living out his word. The spirit of the law says I'm motivated by love. First John 4, 19 says perfect love casts out all Fear. Number three, the letter of the law deals with externals. Externals. So when you're reading the scriptures and you're reading the Bible and it's just an external thing, what do I mean by external? We're only dealing with behavior modification. We're only dealing with willpower. We're only dealing with outside things. We're not letting it touch our heart because the spirit of the law deals with the heart. Now here's perhaps one of the things that are most relevant for us. Number four, the letter of the law seeks to accomplish by one's will and discipline and strength. I can, that's me, hello. How many of you ever said, I just need more discipline? 
That, anybody here? If I were just more disciplined, I would read those 10 chapters, which would make me feel better about myself, which make me better than you, which make me more righteous because I got more disciplined. That's not what God's after. Because you having more discipline doesn't necessarily mean you have more of his heart. And you having more discipline doesn't necessarily mean that you're being more transformed by the power of grace of God. Now, discipline's a good thing and God will use it. But what God wants to do is he wants to breathe supernatural grace because with discipline, I don't need him. Now, listen, don't be weird and start running around and like not cleaning up your house and not brushing your teeth and being all weird, undisciplined people and showing up late to work. And Don't be weird. Okay? <laughs> Don't be weird. God uses discipline, but it is his super it is his supernatural grace that brings about transformation. Here's a great example. In order for me to create a fruitful harvest field of plants. All right? It requires a measure of discipline. Got to get out there. I got to till up the ground. I got to pull out the weeds. I got to make it fertile. All of that's discipline. It's hard work. There is an element of discipline. We're going to talk about that when we get to the end of the book. He does a brilliant job talking about grace versus discipline. So I can go out there. I can toil. I can labor. I can sweat. I can get up early, go down late. I can make sure the ground is perfect. I can plant the seed. Can I make that seed grow? Cannot do it. Impossible. What if I put more water? What if I wake up earlier? What if I work harder? What if I till that ground more? Can I make that orange seed turn into an orange tree? Cannot do it. Why? Because that part belongs to the supernatural power and the grace of God. You waking up earlier, you going to bed later, you praying more fervently, you praying more intensely from the wrong motivation will not make you more like Christ because that part belongs to him. You could, you, listen, you could take an eight-month sabbatical, go hide out in a house of prayer. You could read the Bible 20 times over and it will not make you more like Jesus if you're doing it from the wrong motivation. That part called transformation belongs to him. Anybody connecting with this? It's not just about how much more you're doing if the more you're doing is connected from the life source. Letter of the law says, I'm going to do this on my own. Religion is a really good solution for people who want to be more disciplined. Listen, there's a lot of atheists, a lot of Muslims, a lot of Mormons that are way more disciplined than we will ever be, but they're not more like Christ because that part belongs to him. Look what the spirit of the law does. The spirit of the law says the means to transformation is by surrender and the grace of God. Last, just one thought here for you to chew on. I cannot engage in the spirit of the law without relationship. Isn't that true? And you can take this a thousand different analogies from, from children to parents, from spouses to your, your boss, you cannot truly engage in the spirit, in the heart of what someone is doing devoid of relationship. It's impossible. Which means in order for us to truly participate with the spirit of the law, we have to be close enough to be in conversation. 
we have to be able to ask him questions. We have to know his heart to participate with the spirit of law. And why is that important? Here's why. Because last point, the letter of the law produces insecurity. Isn't it true? Like, it's never enough, is it? Like if I gave $100 this month and I didn't get what I wanted, maybe I was supposed to give $200. Or if I read five chapters, maybe I was supposed to read seven chapters. If I prayed 30 minutes, maybe I was supposed to pray an hour. If I, if I went to two mission trips, maybe I was supposed to go on four because there really is never enough when you're chasing the eternal carrot of transformation in your own strength. Isn't that true? And what does that produce? It produces an insecurity. And you know what insecurity leads to? It leads to anger and control. That's why religious people are some of the ugliest, angriest, most controlling people on the planet because they're so darn ticked off that they're not experiencing the thing that they're chasing in their own strength. That's why they're the ones who killed Jesus. Sinners didn't kill Jesus, religious people did. Second thing that the letter of the law produces, it produces not only insecurity, it produces distance because when you're insecure with somebody relationally, what do you do? Do you press in? No, you pull away. And if you feel like out of all the stuff, listen, there are tons of people walking our streets that they tried and they tried and they tried and they tried and they came to an altar call and they prayed and they cried and they cried and they cried and they promised and they said, I'm never gonna do this again. And they, and they did all of those things with right intentions, but their heart was divorced and far from God. And they were given a religious system as a substitute for life-giving transaction with God. And they're condemned and they're angry and they're guilty. And they said, I'll never go back to that again. Produces distance. The spirit of the law produces intimacy. Number three, letter of the law produces bondage. It's almost like the more religious you, you get, the more religious you become. The letter of the spirit of the law produces freedom. And finally, the letter of the law produces death. So what Paul says, the letter kills. Let's all stand to our feet this morning. I want us to take a minute or two just to pray into this. Now, Listen, every, every, you don't have to, we're all family here. I'll be the first one to raise my hand. How many of you would say that some of the things that were spoken today connect with you in some way in terms of your journey into sonship and your journey into the life of God and the love of God? Absolutely, this right here is for every single one of us. Here's a great assignment for you this week if you wanna just participate in this with another, on a level, another level. Philippians 3, I was gonna read it, we're running out of time. Philippians 3 begins and Paul basically lays out his approach in the letter of the law. I mean, that joker, man, he, he said this. He goes, listen, I was faultless. I nailed it. All of it did it. I followed every rule to a T. He didn't know God. And then he says, I found him. I found him. Man, I found what I was looking for. I found the heart of God. I found Jesus. I found the liberator and the life giver. And today... What I want to, I just want to say this to every single one of you. If you come to the doors of a church today and you've never heard anything about God before, this applies to you. If you were saved in your mother's womb, which is not really possible, but if you were saved in your mother's womb, another message, another time, okay? Listen, this is for you as well. This is for everyone who says, I want the heart of God. I want the heart of God. Listen, you know what? You can get saved right now just by saying in your heart, God, I've been distant from you, I've been far from you, I've ran from you, I've taken a rules-based approach with you, but I, I really wanna be your son or your daughter and I want to know your heart. In that moment, you know what'll happen? 
grace will fill your soul. Bondage will be cut off. Life will enter. Relationship will begin or it will be strengthened. So can we just take about two minutes and just in your heart build an altar in whatever you want to say to the Father. You just say that and I'll close us out in prayer. Jesus, we love you. We really do. You know, you can just even participate with this just in your own way and in your own heart. Just let Jesus know how much you love him. And Jesus, I'm I'm just, I'm walking this out right now in my own life. I know that there are times when, um, I do the same thing over and over and over again. And you're probably beating your head against the wall saying, are you gonna get this? I really do love you. Even though sometimes my transformation hasn't caught up with where my heart is. But I thank you that you're patient. And that you're able to see my heart and you're able to read my heart. And you're after my heart. And I thank you that you are after our heart. You're after our heart. You're after transforming the condition and the posture and the position and the leaning of our heart. And I just say, yes, please do. Change my heart. I can't do this without you. I can't be a Christian without you. I can't be a follower of Jesus without you. I must have the transformational power of your spirit inside of me, working within me. And I yield to that today. And I know that you've given us incredible tools like your word. Lead us into your heart. And I pray that same grace would be upon all of my friends today that we would have the grace of security knowing that you're after our heart and that we would give ourselves grace to be patient with this transformational process even as you are patient with us and that we would keep first and foremost always at the center giving you our heart. Now, if you're comfortable with this, I'm gonna invite you to pray something with me. It's very simple. Six words. Lord, I give you my heart. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my heart. I give you my heart. Listen, if you can learn how to pray that, grace will flood your soul. Grace will enter. So Father, today I pray, give us the grace to give you our heart. In Jesus' name. God bless you, Antioch. Hoping to see some of you guys tonight at the City Prayer Meeting. Have a fruitful, victorious, powerful week in the Lord.